wherever you may happen to be. I'm Michael Reed. And I'm Tucker Johnson. And welcome to the Venn Diagram, the show that covers the intersection of politics, business, language, and culture. Indeed. I think this is our, our third episode, but it's labeled episode yep. two because we started the numbering at zero for, for some that's reason. Totally fine. I think we're doing it Hollywood style. I think that's how you do it. Like if, you know, if we were like Warner Brothers Studios producing Friends, that's what it would be, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, tell us a little bit about the Venn diagram, what we're doing here today, Michael. All right. Well, this is a, sort of a teaser for the Global Readiness Forum call. It's a, an invite-only call that happens on Fridays every two weeks. And this is sort of more of an open forum to talk about a lot of the issues that we cover during that call. There are things that involve business, politics, culture from around the world and things that impact global brands and global businesses or any brand or business that wants to be global. Indeed, and it's, it's a lot of fun that we talk about, and it's so much fun that we want to share it with everybody else. So let's get yes. right into the agenda exactly. that we have today. Exactly. And get- Cut the red velvet rope, and we want to share this with everybody. The agenda for today, and who knows how much of this will get you, but we're going to try to get to a lot of it. There's a lot of pretty meaty stuff here to talk about. One is that Iceland cut its work week to four days, I believe it was, and... And they found that there was greater happiness and no loss of productivity. In the next bit of news, we're going to look at uh, in, what many... In, in related news, be. I may be moving to Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> completely. Comple- well, you actually said it was related news. I was going to say completely unrelated to that. Hmm, Iceland looks good. Exactly. We're also going to be talking about uh, the Roma community and various exonyms. In other words names applied to an ethnic group from people outside that ethnic group to the Roma community and then adopted to be used for other things. And we're going to also talk about a a sports commentator from American channel ESPN, which is owned by Disney and, you know, partners with ABC and Marvel and everything. Isn't everything owned by Disney? Pretty much everything is owned by Disney. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of like in um, we're just gonna Wally. be we're just gonna become one of those podcasts on YouTube that just bitches about Nimsy or Nimsy. <laughs> oh my goodness! I wish there were podcasts that bitched about Nimsy that bitched about Disney, Disney all the time. People make a good living. Uh, on that. that was true. That's very true. And so Stephen A. Smith, he uh, he had some things to say about a a rising star in Major League Baseball. And they were somewhat controversial, so we'll take a look at those mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. But let's jump right in. And I, you know, I don't know how much there is to talk about. I'm, well, actually, there's a lot to talk about, depending on the angle. But talking about Iceland and its work week. So a four-day work week, uh, no damage to productivity from what studies show, and greater happiness. What? What? Like. Yeah, let, let, let me ask. Let's just read this for for folks that are perhaps listening in the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Yeah. Um, so Iceland cuts its work week and found greater happiness and no loss in productivity. Research out of Iceland has found that working fewer hours for the same pay led to improved well-being among workers with no loss in productivity. In fact, in some places, workers were more productive after cutting back their hours. So they're more productive. The trials were conducted from 2015 to 2019. That's interesting. Uh, Workers went Mm. from a 40-hour week scheduled to a 35- or 36-hour weekly schedules without a reduction in pay. The trials were launched after agitation from labor unions and grassroots organizations that pointed to Iceland's low rankings among its Nordic neighbors when it comes to work-life balance. As many people contemplate a future in which they do not need to commute to offices, the idea of working less altogether has its appeal. Discussion questions. We're not, well, discussion questions. Let's discuss it. I don't think we need discussion questions here. Right. Um. But very interesting findings. And right now, remote, you know, hashtag remote work, hashtag virtual office, it, it's coming back into into trending a little bit here because, and as it did when it first started out, when, when, we, when right. we first kicked off in 20, 2020 um, because of mm-hmm. reasons that, that happened right. there. 
But um, now it's coming back because people are going back to the office. Right? Right. So what's exactly. happening? And some people aren't really that happy with going back to the office. And and then I want to, you know, let me sort of sort of go back on what I said, because I said they switched to a four-day work week. It wasn't completely four-day. It was 35 to 36 hours, so that could be split up in different ways. Um, and, of course, you could work four days and work 40 hours still. So it, it's really about the reduction in hours. I can see why there would be an uptick in productivity for a lot of people. And really, there are studies that that back up the idea that there is kind of a cap on how productive you can be in a given day anyway, or at least how productive you can be at a stretch. Um, and there is, there can be a focus in the corporate world on sort of the optics of being busy and the optics of showing up without actually contributing that yeah, much value. the looking so, busy and i don't know if exactly if you're if you're listening to this and you've ever had a job where you've been so stressed out about looking busy then i i feel you <laughs> because to me like the stress of having to look busy in those companies and it's a culture thing in the companies the stress of having to look busy and sound busy and you know signal how busy you are is actually more stressful exactly. than actually being busy with real value-added work. Precisely. Precisely. Because when you're actually engaged in your task, when you're focused on what you're doing and you're, you've got that kind of busyness going on, well, then you're not necessarily, I mean, you could be stressed about whatever task it is you're focused on, but you're, you're right. You don't have that secondary stress of of, oh, I have to make sure that I'm signaling how busy I am all the time, that I'm telegraphing with everything that I'm doing, with my body language, with everything, how busy and therefore how presumably productive I am. Uh, so, yeah, no, it can be a lot of stress, and I can see how this would pay some really big dividends. Now, the question is, are U.S. companies, not just U.S. companies, I mean, the the overwork and the overtime culture in Japan is mind-bogglingly intense sometimes. Uh, so are other countries culturally ready to accept this? Because... Yeah, it's just kind of, you know, work culture, work, work culture is so different around the world. And, you know, speaking as we, we both grew up in America, and I would argue that America doesn't have that great as far as like a healthy work culture. You know, we're, we oh, are very proud agree. of our work culture, the quote unquote Protestant work ethic, right? Mm -hmm. you know, hard days work, you know, getting your hands right. dirty, that whole, right. that whole shtick that we have here in America. But at the end of the day, like how – how useful is that? Um, because we're, we're moving into an economy where th things aren't, you know, wealth isn't so much created by like what you can build. It's, it's right. created more like what ideas that you have and it, it's scalability over traditional production. If that precisely, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, no, which, which makes me wonder here, here, here in Iceland, how are they, um, is this just for hourly worker? Because it's a foreign thing to me. Because like when you tell me mm -hmm. like, hey, Tucker, you, you want to work a four-day work week? And it's like every job that I've had since I was 20 years old was a salaried job where I was working mm -hmm. nights and weekends anyways. Right. You know what I'm saying? So when you say, mm -hmm. hey, let's move to a four-day work week, I, I, I immediately think, okay, so that I can work – on three of my days off instead of two of my days off. Right. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So then, I mean, this is, this is the, the teacher in me coming out, but then I would turn that around and ask, why were you working nights and weekends? Were you, was that an external pressure that was placed on you? Was that something internal saying that you needed to do that? And what did you, did you gain something tangible or something you wanted from that? Well, my knee-jerk reaction when you asked that question was, "Why? Why did I? Why did I work so hard?" It's basically a crippling lack of self-confidence and self-esteem. But I, I, I don't think it's that. I think you know, I, I've worked 
very consciously in in my life. Like when I, when I first got my job at We Localize, for example, that was years and years and years ago. But I was moving from a smaller company. I was moving from Glyph Language to to We Localize. So it's like, oh, the big leagues, yay! And I told myself, and I it was a different phase in my life. I was single. I was well, more or less. I was single. I didn't have kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And right. I told myself, I'm not going to say no for the first mm-hmm. six months. If anyone asks me to do something, right. I'm going to say yes. And I look mm-hmm. back on that now, and I'm just like, what horrible advice to give myself. <laughs> like, that's just <laughs> the boundaries, boundaries, Tucker. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to turn into like the Tucker anecdote show. Let's, let's, do we have anything else on Iceland here that we want to get out? I don't, I don't know that we have that much on Iceland, but I think, you know what? I feel like your anecdote was actually really useful and it's, you know, we can segue to something else, but I think it's good for people to think about why we've set up the work culture in, in whatever country you're watching this from. Why is the work culture in your country set up the way that it is? And is it actually leading to the goals that it purports to lead to? There are a lot of things that we do for, you know, a, we say it's for a particular reason without ever really stopping to think, okay, is X thing getting Y result that we tell ourselves that it's going to? So, but no, I think that, I think there's a lot to think about. There. Well, Absolutely. And, and especially for those of us, you know, working in global organizations, which, you know, if, if you're watching this on multilingual media's channel, chances are you're working in a global you're organization. Probably. You are our target demographic. Um yes. And so you have to navigate these complexities for, for all of your different teams. And it's, it was challenging 18 months ago and it's challenging now and it will be challenging in 18 months from now because I was just going to say the world changes. That's right. And yeah, exactly. It is not likely to get any less challenging. Let's look at this. Let's get into the news here. Where are we starting with the full agenda? I would like to start in, excuse me, I keep touching my eyes. I've got, so I live in Greece. Dr. Fauci would be appalled, sir. I know. Touching right? your face. I, not, but I, I, I'm vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. Um, no, I live in Greece and it is currently 36 degrees Celsius here. And so I have an air conditioner going and it's kind of hitting me right here. And so it's making my eyes water. Yeah. Um, well, so, so for, the, like- for the record, before we were live on air, Michael and I were talking about the weather in Fahrenheit. So I don't want him to get yes. away with just pretending to be Greek now. <laughs> we were, we were, but then I was looking at my computer and my computer's in Celsius. I was like, I'm not going to do right, that it, calculation. It, in the news, in the news, we're burning daylight. All right. Um, I want to talk about Oops. actually the Roma story. Roma. If we can, because I think this is a, this is a, this is an important one. I just realized um, I think I may have used the term gypsy in the title. If that's the case, I, I will update that as soon as this is over with. Uh, that's, just, that's, I was reading about gypsy moths and yeah, – all right. There we go. Well, and, and this is what we're going so, to talk about. Why can't – why should yeah, I use the word gypsy in, in the title? Um, who is that disrespectful to, etc.? There are a lot of Roma – communities that find and you know out of i i don't know what the consensus is on it and it is not a community of which i am a part so i don't have the right to say how offensive or not it is just out of deference to people who might be offended i won't use the term fair enough but this this is a live issue for a lot of people and to be sure, the we'll, we'll say the G word. I am not a fan of euphemisms, but again, it's not it's not my business to speak on it, so I won't. That has been perceived as a slur to a lot of people, and objectively, it has been used in a very negative way, in a very pejorative way, in different expressions in different countries. And so, I can certainly see why people would. Uh, as they say, feel some kind of way about it. Like that's that's very legitimate. I really understand where people are coming from with that. Now, the G word has not been understood to be pejorative by people who are not of that community uh, for for quite a long time. And therefore it has lent itself to the names of 
different species of insect, different species of plant, etc., including some invasive species of the same. Well, and now there's a move to take that name let's, off. Let's just clarif of, clarify, though, um, when you, because you say it hasn't – the term gypsy has not been um, thought of as offensive by non-Roma people. So it has mm -hmm, been mm -hmm. applied to different terms like the gypsy mm -hmm. moth. Now, right. that's not to be confused with the fact that the term gypsy has been morphed or weaponized into potentially derogatory yes. terms like gypped. Absolutely. Right? And Absolutely. I, I grew up yeah. saying gypped, no and I had I no idea. Yeah. I had no idea what the, the etymology, wait, etymology mm -hmm. or entoma. See, I'm looking at pictures of a bug, and I'm trying to figure out <laughs> entomology. entomology. <laughs> All right. Oh, Here, well, here's the bug. Bugs, here's the bug. Yeah, yeah intimacy. This is what I'm looking at. That's why I'm like etymology. Oh, so, okay, yeah, yeah I, I wasn't aware of the etymology of the word. I didn't know where. It was. I didn't know there was a group of people called Roma, or I didn't even know that there was a group of people called Gypsies. Well, I mean, I watched The Hunchback of Notre uh -huh. Dame, right? But right. that was about right, it. Right. So. Well. Yeah, I, I just want to draw that distinction because I don't think everybody that's using a derogatory term like that is using it with bad intentions. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea oh, is 100%. just awareness, not hey, you can't, you can't do this. Hundred percent. Yeah. There are. I am very sure that there are people out there to this, like, and literally as we speak, who are using the term with zero ill intent. I I have no problem believing that. You know, I think it's it's a difficult thing because in a way, this kind of goes to what you were just saying. It's an ethnic group that a lot of people, I think, only sort of realize are an ethnic group in the sort of the periphery of their consciousness, at least in the United States. And the understanding of this is very different in Europe, by the way, um, in, in many places in Europe, including where I live here in Greece. But it, it's... It's one of those things where, you know, for example, in the UK, especially in the US, uh, issues around African-American or Af people of African descent, that's kind of immediate for a lot of people, right? People really get what's going on with those things. You know, you, you pretty much know which words are going to uh, cause offense and, you know, which ones are going to be safer, quote unquote. With this ethnic group, I think the understanding is a little bit different. And I think there's also been a way in which it was thought of that it was sort of okay for that group to be relegated to the margins. Um, and that there is a move, and I've, I've seen this in the works for a few years, to for, for Roma people to really sort of reclaim their identity uh, and say, hey, no, we are an actual people. We're not a caricature. We're an actual people. We're an actual ethnic group. We're an actual culture. We have an actual language or could be thought of as many languages because it's, it, the dialects have kind of had quite a bit of spread over the years. Um, and we're not just there to be made fun of or to be the boogeymen that you say, you know, are going to steal your children or uh, to be somebody to be blamed when there's crime in your neighborhood or something like that. Uh, and, and, Understand, too, that this is a live issue in other places much more than it is, say, in the United States, because the the percentage of the population is much bigger. In Bulgaria, I believe, Roman Roma people make up some 10% of the population. Really? Um, yeah. So, or, you know, people of Roma descent, well, uh, whether let, they still hold to the culture or not. So let's, I, let me just read this here um, once again for our, for our listeners at home. Um, so, uh, <laughs> because... We've been talking about Roma here for for quite a while, but it may not be immediately apparent what the issue here. And it's this is true. The and um, I keep forgetting that we're a podcast now. Too, yeah, so I, 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 I keep trying to, to remind myself of that as well. Um, yeah. So, an invasive species has an ethnic slur in its common name, and entomologists are changing that. Um, entomologists, of course, study bugs. So in June of 2021, the Entomo Entomological Society of America initiated efforts to stop use of the derogatory term gypsy. 
voting to remove gypsy moth and gypsy ant from a list of common names used to refer to the insects. They will go by their Latin names until new common names are chosen. I'm glad we didn't list the Latin names because then I would have to try to pronounce them. Uh, <laughs> Margareta Matece, director of Roma program at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard, was consulted as a part of the name removal. She said the change, although it seems small, is relevant in the conversations about the rights of Romani people. Uh, words have power, and more so, she says. Racial slurs like the G word have been particularly offensive and dangerous for Romani people. We have been constantly dehumanized through the means of language and links to insects, animals, criminality, opulence. End quote. No, no, not end quote. Continue quote. Changing the name of this insect is very relevant in rectifying the mainstream narratives about Romani people. Our people history, uh, our people history and culture have been too often misrepresented and mocked. And prejudice has always been used to justify anti-Roma racism and discrimination against Romani people across the world. So that that is the challenge that that we're looking yes. at here. And as as we were ch chatting here, I was just looking. At, what is the FXB Center for Health? I'm, I'm assuming this um, this lady is Romani. She identifies as Romani. Um, it's and it's interesting to me that the um, this is coming out of Harvard. It's coming out of America, right? Like like right. she's she's she may be um, Romani, but. Mm -hmm. Isn't this a European issue or more of a, you know, I don't want to say like, hey, this is European or this is a, an American right. issue. We're all in this together, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But it's like the same way that the analogy you used earlier about like the um, um, Africans in America, African-Americans. Mm -hmm. That's a very American thing. Um, right, right. And it does, on the one hand, I can definitely see it being thought of as a more European thing. Because like I say, that you know, the population... Uh, by percentage of population, for example, there are many more Roma people in in Bulgaria uh, than there are in the United States. I think the population in the United States is some million or so people, but there's what, 318, 320 people, million, 320, 18, 320 million people in the United States. So as a portion of the population, that's vanishingly small. Right. Um, so I, I think it's very tempting to think of it like that. I think part of what it is, is that though the percentage of the population may be smaller in the United States, perhaps Romani groups and, and anybody out there who knows more about it than I do, please feel free to correct me, but that maybe they feel like there's a bit more, they have a bit more room for having some agency in terms of shifting the narrative. Yeah. Um, no, and they might. It's just interesting. Cause I've never, I've never met someone or maybe perhaps i have right. perhaps i have america's right, a melting pot so right all and right you, yeah you just you didn't know what's so next i what's next here let's let's so burn through next? this so that we don't have to do yes. a lightning round i'm pretty sure we still have to do a lightning round at the end but well, you might anyway fun. um this isn't going to take too long but i just think it's interesting the uh spanish film festival the oh yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah. San Sebastian international film festival switching to gender neutral awards. So instead of All best right. actor, actress. All right, let's, um, let's do this right. Let's do this right. I'll read it. Right. I'll read right. it this to start with, with my, my, my podcaster voice. Spanish Film Festival shifts to gender neutral awards. So Spain's San Sebastian International Film Festival announced on June 22nd that its acting awards will this year be gender neutral for the first time. The sh silver shell for best actor and best actress are to be replaced by the silver shell for best leading performance and best supporting performance. The move follows a similar step taken by the Berlin Film Festival held last March, held last March and is part of a growing trend. The change arises from the conviction that gender, a social and political construct, is no longer a criterion that we follow to distinguish between performances. The festival director, Jose Luis Rebordinos, said the criterion for the jury will be to distinguish between good and bad performances. So. This, and you know, I don't know that there's necessarily too much to talk about here other than to say that 
than to reinforce the idea that it really is part of a growing trend. I mean, you know, we hear a is lot it? about gender neutral. Is it, though? I think it is. Because this, to me, looks like it's the opposite of other trends that I've been seeing. Because How so? So trends right, to identify, label, and support, call out, whatever, whatever your terminology more and more and more genders and gender identifications. Um, that's what, mm-hmm. you know, there's that trend that's pushing towards celebrating more genders mm-hmm. rather than right. being inclusive of all genders. That there's, so there's that trend. And then there's this, which is going the other way. It was just saying, right. because if I'm a feminist, if I identified as a feminist, I would say, well, screw you. I don't want it. I want my own. Uh, women should have their own category. Because we're mm-hmm. awesome. Future is female. Um, I see what you're saying. Fem- Feminists, let me know how you think in, in the chat, right? Like, it's, I am very curious about that, about what people think about this. And this is, I think, that, I mean, this is a much yeah. larger issue than could be covered in I was, one program. I'm just looking at this close up of Michael. This is the look of a man trying to figure out what the hell is my co host getting me into here? <laughs> <laughs> Like, hopefully that, that this will be the thumbnail for the show. My look, of like, yeah. Oh, dude. Originally, you're like, well, I don't think there's much to say about this. Let's just move along. And I'm like, wait a second. You know, I, I here's the thing. I mean, you know me. I, I, I never want to shy away from these things. I think that this points to something pretty deep, which is there are multiple ways to do inclusivity. That can look diametrically opposed. Tell me more, Rabbi. So, because I can, because here, here's how I'm, here's how I'm framing it in my head, and I'm not saying that this is the sole way to think of it, but I think it's a way to think of it. You could say that by abolishing the distinction entirely and boiling it down to what are we actually judging the quality of the performance, then that is being maximally inclusive right i i see the point and as as we're talking about this I, I'm, I'm thinking of some differences myself here which is with the branching genders identifying more and more genders mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it's a false equivalency to say be, and, and here's why because the conversations typically that are being had around those are things that are related to gender, right? So like uh-huh. trans, transgenders ability to participate in college sports or the Olympics, right? Right, right. now there right. are, there are very good arguments on both sides of, of that because the physiology, blah, 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 blah. This has nothing to do with any of that, right? This, right. this is acting and acting right. is exactly. one of those um, undeniably egalitarian professions exactly. where, you know, I have favorite yeah. actresses and I have favorite actors and uh-huh. I like them for the, the same reason. To express yourself, right. You potentially can be a fantastic performer. Right. Right. So no, well, that, and that's, that is maybe what it is. And, and I think you've done something that I actually find very useful to do is sort of boil things down to their essential elements and say, okay, what are we actually talking about here? Are we talking about something that has to do with the thing? Like you say, athletic performance, Mm -hmm. or are we talking about something that doesn't have anything to do with the thing at all? Big theatrical performance. And if we're talking about something that doesn't have anything to do with the thing, then the way to be inclusive is to abolish any consideration of gender whatsoever whatever gender you might happen to be and then when we're talking about things where gender or gender presentation is potentially an issue uh you know the way bathrooms are organized um the way gender exclusive spaces are organized for example in in shelters for people experiencing homelessness you'll have one section for women and children another section for men or different shelters entirely for those populations so that's something where you know an area where it could come up um so you know then is where it's more appropriate to talk about different gender identities and gender uh gender presentations yeah something like that where really interesting to me is is language has the power, 
right? Language has always had power, but I think the world is kind of waking up to that fact now. I'm seeing more uh-huh. and more and more hashtag words matter, right? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Language is violence, right? Uh-huh. <sighs> we could debate that. We could debate that. Right. But what's right. undeniable is that just by people talking about language is violence, they're giving it power and power is something that you, you give to something. And that's what we're all about is language in, in right. the industry that I operate in, that we operate here at multilingual. Exactly. And I just wanted to bring up this. This is something that I was looking at last night. I'm sorry. This is not on the agenda. Um, no, that's totally fine. Bring it on. But this is fascinating. It's uh, Assembly Bill 218 in California, mm-hmm. and I, I hope I got the right one. And lots and lots and lots and lots of boring, boring stuff in here. Um, lots of interesting stuff, too. Um, but mm-hmm. it's a lot. Anyways, what what's relative to language in here is it's mandating an updating of the California codes to remove all gendered languages. And what, mm-hmm. what happened was um, an aide, a staffer, I believe, was going through and looking at like the job descriptions and the codes for mm-hmm. uh, attorney generals. And it was always mm-hmm. referred to as he, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they said, okay, well, let's change that. And they did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cool. I like mm-hmm. that because it's, you know, attorney generals don't need to be he and she. And, you know, language cool. purists may cite some style guide that says use the masculine form instead of blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But language purists will be replaced by the language purists of tomorrow, right? Language evolves. Get over exactly. it. And exactly. I actually kind of went down the rabbit hole um, last night. I was looking at this and I was like, hmm, I wonder how much work that would be to update. And a lot of mm-hmm. California civil codes are already reflective of gender, um, gender neutral language. So they say he or she. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And it, it got me into, you know, thinking about like, well, what about in the the penal code? What about mm-hmm. when referring to defendants or prisoners? Mm-hmm. Like, that's mm-hmm. not an honorific term. So, do we replace that too? No. You know, it brings up these questions. And then I started thinking, well, what about in the European Union, where all of these laws and legislations and codes and stuff have to be localized into a ton mm-hmm. of different languages? By law. Who's going to do that? Right? That is a massive TM update project. Right? So that's why this is interesting to me. Because like, hmm. Absolutely. There there are two things I want to say about this. One, I'm thinking about the California one specifically. So what do you do when you're talking about reproductive rights and issues around that? Because that is usually going to involve female pronouns. And usually. So do you... Do you remove all those? Not t- and there's some people who argue that, that you should. Not touching that one. Yeah. I, but so but we live in an age I mean, where men can give birth. Well. Yeah. We live in an right. age where men can give birth. So, so I, I could see their argument there. Yeah. Also, going to the the uh, European Union one that you're or the the uh, example that you gave there. That is not only a massive TM update. That is a massive massive and i think people who don't speak uh inherently gendered languages don't understand just how massive it is sometimes uh, undertaking to figure out how to either paraphrasistically or somehow tweak some matrix feature of the language um to be completely gender neutral and we're not just talking about gen- like gender binary inclusive you no. can, with the addition of, you know, slashes or middle, middle points or whatever, uh, you can make most languages pretty male-female binary inclusive. But to make them completely gender neutral is exceedingly difficult. I, yeah. I just actually yesterday, or I think it might have been today, uh, was reading something from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Greece. And I just, I was realizing as I was reading it, because I think about these things, this would be so much work to make completely gender neutral. Um, it, like, I can't even imagine the amount of work that would have to go into it because you would, there are so many things, because Greek has three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. And 
it is, it would be so incredibly hard to, in every instance, when you're referring to a person. Yeah, and but that's that, yeah. that's one thing. Point of clarification, right? Because like I was educated by um, Meggie Montero, Mercedes Montero, um, and I did an interview with her on mm -hmm. one of my other freaking narcissistic podcasts that I do. Um, link in the description, <laughs> probably. And she laid it out for me. She's a Spanish linguist, and she studied mm -hmm. this. She teaches this, and like mm -hmm. she just was really able to explain it to me in a way that made sense to me, which is like, mm -hmm. look, this is a phenomenon that's happening with language. Let's take the controversy out of it, mm -hmm. right? This is a phenomenon that's happening with language. As language providers, whether we're translators, whether we're LSPs, it's our job to serve our customers. And mm -hmm. part of serving our customers is advising them on things that are happening in the language. Right. And right. so we need to be aware of these things. Uh -huh. My, and this is just completely opinion here, is, or prediction, I would say, is I would hesitate to be investing if I was, um, well, not if I was a government. Governments don't care about spending money. Um, if I was an enterprise, I would be hesitant to investing a ton of money into updating my TMs until the dust settles. A little bit because right now I think there's so much conversation about how like everyone's in agreement language is evolving no one's in agreement yeah. on right. how right, right. so no, I I yes that is that is a hundred percent right and I think it's the water is muddied in the case of uh, multilingual multi-ethnic sort of con confederations <laughs> like mm -hmm. the European Union because there will be some languages, and that's the thing. By law, every law has to be in every EU language. Yeah. There will be some languages where that's not going to be an issue at all. Some EU languages don't are completely gender agnostic. Uh, and then there are going to be languages like Greek where it is exceedingly difficult. And there is no real common on the ground agreement of, of how even to do it, as you just sort of alluded to, yeah. the dust has not even kind of settled. Yet. Well, and this is what we're talking about. Like, Hey, it, this is opportunity for us mm -hmm. in our industry, you know, whether you're, you're on the client mm -hmm. side, like figure it out, take the lead, take charge. People are looking for a leader right. here. Um, right. People are looking for someone to step up and be like, this is what we're going to do. No one wants to stick their necks out there. And if you're right. if you're on the supply chain side, you know, I don't care if you're a linguist, a consultant, a, you know, LSP salesperson, doesn't matter. This is this is the opportunity to really be able to educate ourselves so that we can educate others about this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And really take part in a very alive and important societal conversation mm -hmm. right because it, when we work in language what we are doing is intimately connected with human activity by its very definition here's here's what i would like to do so I, i'm going i just had a flash thought because we've got some time here if mm -hmm. if you're watching this um if you're watching this i and you're you work for an lsp or you're just some translator with access to a tm and a web scraper i would love to scrape all 29 California civil or California codes, um, all of their legislation, their constitution, all of their state documents, and do an analysis, do a word count analysis, and put together a rough estimate of what is this going to cost to update everything in the industry. And if, if you're watching this and you can do that, I don't have time. I just don't have time, and I don't want to randomize my my poor team with it but that would be super interesting and then come, come back on a venn diagram awesome. and talk with us about it yes because yes, that's please. what i couldn't find how much is this going to cost there's no budget allocated for it so california can pass a law and say this is going to happen but well, all right well where's the money right. yeah and and how much money and who and how and all sorts of things yeah. and who's oh. going to be invited to that rfp when uh -huh. when it comes time uh -huh. to do that i i they're not hiring staffers sitting in Sacramento I, I'm, to update this. Well, I don't know. They might be, but doubt it. Could be. It's a possibility, but yeah. All right. Which dead horse should we beat next here? <laughs> All right. There, there are two dead horses uh, 
that I want to get to my that's, that's some imagery right there. Um, yeah, but th thanks for humoring my, my California tangent. That was not. Oh, no, you're absolutely welcome. I was born in California too. San Francisco native right here. So I get it. Okay. Um, I want to talk about two things. I, I think one, the thing that I want to talk about is after the thing that I want to land on. Okay. And the thing I want to talk about next is actually ESPN and Stephen Smith and saying that Shohei Otani shouldn't be speaking uh, Japanese as much as he does. <laughs> yeah, what was... Okay, yeah. Okay. T I, I, tell me no, about this because you did this podcast too. So I will read it in my podcast. Yeah, you read it. Is there video of this? Is there an audio recording? I can try to find it. I don't believe that there is. Well, maybe there is. Okay. Maybe there is. But I'll, I'll read this in my podcaster voice while you're looking for Go it. Go for it. ESPN Stephen A. Smith says it's not good for baseball that Japanese sensation Shohei Otani doesn't speak English with the media. Smith argued that Shohei Otani hasn't helped MLB's popularity because he uses an interpreter and that using an interpreter doesn't draw fans because they don't know what he is saying. This brother is special. Make no mistake about it, Smith said on first take on Monday. But the fact that you've got a foreign player that doesn't speak English, that needs an interpreter, believe it or not, I think contributes to harming the game to some degree. When that's your box office appeal, I don't think that it helps that the number one face is a dude that needs an interpreter so that you can understand what the hell he's saying in this country. Smith's comments drew some criticism, including from members of ESPN. So, so. I, I have like a hundred things to say about this and I'm going to narrow it down to a couple and, and full disclosure, I started out in this industry as a Japanese interpreter. Okay. So I I'm curious, have, I'm curious whether I you and I are going to agree. In this fight, okay. Big time. I don't, but I'll um, still disagree with you. If, Oh, if it's awesome. fun, if it's fun Let's to do. do. All right. So what's All your right. take? So my take is one that, he this is a very ahistorical take um i don't know how many people remember ichiro but and here's a full disclosure again i do not follow baseball i just have no interest in it but ichiro but you follow was, japanese i do follow japanese and i especially follow the ichiro because he was actually a member of the local team when i was going to school in japan the city that i was i lived in he was a member of the local team, and then he went to the Mariners, and he got really famous. He had an interpreter for the longest time because his English wasn't that great. Okay, fine. Not a problem. Um, and I usually, in, in most cases, I don't have too much patience for people who say, oh, you're in America, speak English, because English has no more claim to Americanness than any other language does that isn't, for example, Navajo or Cherokee. Fair, fair point. This is your regular public service announcement that America does not yeah. have an official language. That is a correct. Does not have an official there. language, yeah. and and its indigenous languages have unfortunately almost no purchase here. I also th so I think it's ahistorical because he seems to be just completely forgetting that this is hardly the first time a Japanese baseball player has spoken through an interpreter like this been a thing since the 90s but the other thing that i think is interesting is this this is ignoring the context in which a lot of the rest of the world is expected to interact with other parts of the world especially the anglophone parts of the world through interpreters and people don't really make a big deal about it. Um, just the other day, as a matter of fact, there was a, a guy from, I think if I'm not mistaken, he is from Poland and he was talking on uh, one of the Greek channels about coming to the local, one of the local Athens football teams, soccer teams. And he, nice. was, <laughs> he, he was speaking English and then they had subtitles in Greek under it. Two things here, one, he was a Polish, I believe, person speaking in Greece, but speaking English. Yes. And there were subtitles. My and brain hurts. Nobody, there. Like, here's the thing. I'm sure plenty of people had opinions on this in terms of how fit he is for the team or not, or that kind of thing. 
But nobody's head that I've known of has said a word about the fact that he was speaking in English or the fact that there were Greek subtitles and that that's how they had to understand him. So something that a lot of the rest of the world does and is kind of expected to do, to be honest, um, it is somehow a matter of uh, a bone of contention for Stephen A. Smith. And I actually like Stephen A. Smith. He said some things that I thought were incredibly right on. But on this one, I was like, what are you, what are you trying to say here? Now, he's, he's gone back and said, I'm just trying to say, basically, he is an incredible, incredible, like probably Babe Ruth level baseball player. And he's not getting the attention he deserves because of this. But if that's your point, then critique the, the mentality that makes people feel that if they're hearing something through an interpreter, that they don't have access to, to, to what's going on. So much of the rest of the world is expected to, to interface with the rest of the world through interpreters. Like what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Come yeah. On. Yeah. So that, that's, that's my take on it. I mean, there are so many rabbit holes to go down with this. I mean, cause this, this ties deeply into a lot of things about people's agency over their language and, and language and power and how they interact. Um, but yeah, I just, I thought it was a really poor take on Stephen A. Smith's part. And it, to be honest, I feel like it's one of those things that if he thought about it a little bit more, he'd probably go back and be like, oh, yeah, that wasn't my finest moment. But maybe, you know what, maybe he would stick to his guns. And then I would just have to be like, no, man, you got this one wrong. Just, you just got it wrong. Um, but it's, it's interesting I guess the note that I would leave it on is to say it is interesting in a world where English has so much power, um, probably more power than the actual number of people who speak it would would really well, it, it, It's power such um, that it's not even – it's just an, a norm. Right. Because exactly. when you say like it has power, that's like implying like, oh, English is like this force that's out there exerting power. Sort of... It's not exerting its power. It just is like English doesn't have yeah, any more just... power than bedrock does under. Right. That's true. People just you, you make a good point. And that's the, the ultimate expression of its power is that people don't even it, it doesn't it, it just sort of is at this point. Yeah. Um, and, and it's taken as a default, which is strange because non-native and native speakers combined, only 20% of the world speaks it. But that, I mean, there are a lot of factors that go into that. But in a world where English is has become such a fixture, let's describe it like that. And so many people are expected to interact with the world, especially on any kind of international level via English. And English has even become very problematically synonymous with multicultural native speakers of English somehow take umbrage at the idea that they would have to interact with the world. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know that we take umbrage with it. It's just we're we're spoiled. I mean, you know, when you take away yeah. oh, a kid's lollipop, time. they get take umbrage to that <laughs> too. Right. I, I'm super spoiled. Yeah. I do not need to learn another language to be, to uh, to get where I want to be in life. Right. To get to where I want to be in life, I, as an, a native English speaker, do not need to learn another language. And you know, it's it and is, at least you're conscious of that. It is what it is, right? I, I'm not. You know, I didn't do anything to deserve that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, okay. Without getting into it um, too much here, I, I would just say that. This is interesting coming from the language industry because we're all about interpretation, right? Like that's what, that's what we do on translation and right. interpretation. So it's like to say like I, I really want to be clear here that interpreters provide a vital role, right? And Absolutely. I think that if someone wants to – um, if someone feels more comfortable in being their authentic self in their own language, then they should be able to do that. Now, 100%. do I do I think that he has a point, that Smith has a point, though? I, I do. 
because I'm also about localization, which is adapting your product. I'm going to get some heat for this, adapting your product for a local market. And mm-hmm. in in Major League Baseball, the the players are essentially a product, right? Like that or not, I don't. I'm not saying that's good. I think there's atrocious things that happen, particularly with collegiate sports, where um, players are very much um, monetized, manipulated, and controlled and taken advantage of. But you know, I think he has a point. I, I don't. I'm glad that he's not the final decision maker, though, because I would personally yeah. like to respect his right. Um, to speak Japanese. Well, and and that's the thing. I agree with you that he does have a certain point, and it's not what he's saying cannot be immediately dismissed um, or kind of hand waved over. There is something he's saying that really does um, have to be wrestled with, because I, you know, I it it drives me up a wall when I see Anglophones coming to other countries and thinking, oh, hey, I don't have to learn the language because I can speak English. Yeah, like, no. no. Yeah, me too. Come me on. Me too. Me too. Yeah. But, so, but uh, I would challenge you, do you have that, do you hold yourself to that same standard for Japanese people coming to America? Well, and that's the thing. And that's why I say that has to be wrestled with. Okay. Yeah. Let's think about that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. You should. Now, I would say the, you know, there's <laughs> this is not, this is not the native language. Yeah, I was but, just going to say, this is not the Answers podcast. Like, we don't have answers here. No, just... it isn't. No, it, it's it's a really, like I say, there there's a lot to this. There's a lot to this issue. Big time. Big time. Well, I sir. I want to. We've yes. got five minutes. We've got five minutes. Let's talk about mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yes. So I was looking at, is this the one? All right, I'll, I'll check it out here. So last last and final topic, mindfulness meditation can make some Americans more selfish and less generous. Mindfulness developed as a part of Buddhism where it's intimately tied up with Buddhist spiritual teachings and morality. Mindfulness in the U.S., on the other hand, is often taught and practiced in purely secular terms. It's frequently offered simply as a tool for focusing attention and improving well-being, a conception of mindfulness some critics have referred to as mic mindfulness. I like that. Oh, I should probably bring this up. I'm sorry, guys, if you can't see that. Um, mindfulness. Now you forgot we were on video. Now you I forgot, forgot we're hurting cats here. Um, mindfulness and Buddhism developed in Asian cultures in which the typical way in which people think about themselves differs from that in the U.S., specifically collectivism versus individual. Are we going to talk about collectivism versus individualism with four minutes left? Wow. That is ambitious. What, you mean we can't do that? <laughs> we, we can try. According to a unit, well, we I have the San Diego, I think, local lunch, which is coming up. I love those local lunches, um, but I can be late to that. Uh, according to a University of Buffalo study, among relatively interdependent-minded individuals, a brief mindfulness meditation caused them to become more generous. So in collectivist societies, um, mindfulness leads to being more generous. However... Among relatively independent-minded individuals, and that would be me, mindfulness appears to make them less generous with their time. Interesting. And I, I think this is fascinating, and I told you I, I want to talk about this too, because you know, mindfulness, there's an app for that now. There's 20 apps for that now. There, there's I was going to say, there are, there's, there's an app. There are many. Yeah, so there are like global mindfulness things. This isn't like something that you have to travel to some obscure country and study with a, a monk for anymore, right? So what does that mean? Because it's something that is incredibly cultural, and how do you adapt mindfulness across cultures, or do you? And it's a, and the one statistic just that I was looking at before this that I want to say to sound smart is that mindfulness is a $1.2 billion industry expected to grow to $2 billion in 2022, so in the next year. Um, and wow, I really, meditation, something about letting go of earthly troubles like money mm-hmm. is worth a lot of money. It turns out (laughs) ironically. Well, and I think this brings us to an interesting question of how, what is so universal that it can kind of be 
you know, its essence can be distilled and then localized for a different audience. And is mindfulness one of those things? Maybe mindfulness is one of those things, but the particular way in which mindfulness practice is practiced needs to be localized. An argument could be made that prayer in the, you know, in the various Christian traditions is mm -hmm. a form of mindfulness. Meditation in the Buddhist tradition. Oh, absolutely. The, absolutely. The, the five uh, times of prayer a day in Islam are a form of mindfulness. So, so when, like what, what kind of mindfulness, I guess, really in this case is being, is being offered here? Is it a particular kind of mindfulness or is it the concept of mindfulness? And if it's the concept of mindfulness, isn't that something that we've had some version of? We just didn't call it that. We called it instead, we called it prayer or we called it quiet time or we called it. Yeah, I mean, the, the concept of meditation has been a thing in, in American society for quite a while. Um, so is it just something are we just calling something that we've always had some manifestation of by a different name? What's I, I would really want to see what's actually going on here. Well, underneath the surface and once again it comes down to language right it comes down to words and what, what do we call right. things right what do we right. call religion what do we call spirituality what do we call right. uh, and, and these are things that are going to be very different the fact like the number and type of words used to describe such concepts are mm -hmm. going to be different the fundamentals of language are going to be different when, when describing these things and right. you know to, to me to me, this is it's 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 a it's a religion. It, this is what's happening. I think with um, the the world, particularly Christianity, it's just it's just not hip anymore, right? Which which mm -hmm. breaks breaks my heart. But people still need to scratch that spiritual itch, so they're turning right. to these secular forms of spirituality and getting oh, right. that getting the spiritual itch scratched there. And great, I love it. Um, that's awesome where, where anybody can fill that need. I don't care if it's in a church or a synagogue or right. um, with a headspace app. Right. No, whatever, whatever does it for you. And that's the thing. That's, that's why I think I take that, that sort of attitude toward it, that it, it feels like in a way we're calling the same thing, a different name because there are people who don't identify with the other names that might be attached to more particular religious practices. And that's fine. That's totally fine. Like if because of the way your personal cosmology works, the word prayer doesn't work for you. Yeah. Cool. That's totally cool. Call it mindfulness. Then I, I don't care. Like, you know, but if you, like you say, if you've got that spiritual itch, or we won't even call it a spiritualist because some people that would bother some people. It too. would, it would. Like a logical itch, let's just say. Yeah, um, but the reason to me, like, this is an interesting subject, particularly for the localization, the language industry, is because this is a hot-button item, right? And there, there, there's certain topics that words really matter, right? Really, really, really matter. No one cares what you call your screwdriver. Well, that's a – you could actually do some interesting things with the word screwdriver. But no, no one cares what you call your um, – Wow, I was about table. to say spoon. Table. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, no one cares what you call your table. Ikea. Looking at you and your Schlugeldorfen um, furniture. Um, <laughs> and, and I will buy it and I will love it. I don't care what you call it. But the difference between, um, you know, a simple word like church and synagogue that I used earlier. Big Absolutely. difference. Big difference. Words. So right? it comes full circle. We started off this episode talking about words matter. That's right. And, and we come back to, indeed, words matter. 57 minutes later, words still matter. So there we go. I'm happy to report that. Well, um, you know, Michael, I don't think we have time for an, a lightning round, but I'm just happy I that the internet connection, this is our first episode from Greece. Um, yes. Did we talk and about that? Did you, seems cool. did, did you tell everybody that you moved to Greece? Did we talk about that earlier in the episode? I Well, I just, I referenced it, but yes, the oh. first couple of episodes, I was from uh, Washington State in the U.S., and now I have successfully relocated to Athens, Greece, where I will be living from now on. 
my beautiful family. That is so awesome. So multilingual editor in, in Europe. Multilingual comes to Europe. Yes. We're, we're spreading. That's right. You guys are spreading across the right. globe. Well, yes, our, our flag has been planted in the Mediterranean. Well, I'm glad you landed, and I'm glad, and that's why, by the way, we haven't been doing these for a while. Like we did like one yes. or two episodes, and then we just took like six weeks off. And I, yeah. I've been doing other stuff on on other channels, going live. I've even been kind of chilling out on that, hitting a reset button, because we're we're basically just playing around with stuff here at Multilingual, and I'm playing with stuff over at Nimsy to make sure, like, how can we get you guys? What do you guys want? Right. So reach out to us, reach out to Michael, yes. reach out, reach out to Mario line over at multilingual. You can reach out to me if you have any questions, comments, um, suggestions on ideas, what, yeah, yes. what we can be doing, or if you yeah. would like to buy products and services from us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, oh, uh, we need to plug multilingual mercantile is up. Um, I don't know if we've even been advertising that, but I think it's a soft launch. If you're interested in multilingual merch, we've got cool. I've been sipping my coffee this morning out of my multilingual mug, wearing my multilingual hat. Go check it out, mercantile.multilingual.com. So with that, let's get us out of here, Michael. Thank you, everybody, for joining the Venn Diagram with Michael Reed and myself, co-host. Why, If I'm the co-host, why am I doing the outro? Michael. I don't know. Take us out. But you do a really good job of it. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Have a good rest of your day or a good evening, wherever you happen to be, and we'll see you next time.